Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. I'm Joe Wolfond, and I'm joined remotely, as always, by my co-host, Joseph Cacharo. Talk to me, Cash. What's going on? Uh, I mean, what is what is ever going on, really, these days? Like, <laughs> I know um, after a couple weeks back, we'd sort of gone on a slight tangent talking about the Irishman, talking about your disappointment about the casting of the Lakers Showtime <laughs> docu-series. And we apologized for straying off topic. And we we actually got like a little bit of feedback saying that a couple of listeners wouldn't mind if we did that more often. So, I mean, I would love to enlighten our listeners with any kind of interesting anecdotes, but it just feels like it's been so much of the same for the last over a year now that... I don't know how much there is to delve into. I don't know how interested these people are in our personal lives. But then again, the whole point of this is that multiple people actually reached out saying they'd, <laughs> they'd like to hear more. I mean, we can even do an early fan shout out this week. Mars on SoundCloud goes by, I believe, Marzy Panzers on SoundCloud from Atlanta actually said, I think y'all should talk about y'all personal lives more, to be honest. We care about y'all too. Yeah, I don't know. We'll find you out. You have anything you want to share with the people before we get into ranting and raving about clowns and fugazis? Um, I, I'm having a kid. I guess that's like a big piece of personal news, something that's happened. I mean, Cash, you, you, you don't have to pretend to be surprised. I know you know this. See, you like that You like that acting? And they didn't cast me to play Pat Riley. Unbelievable. <laughs> but yeah, that's that's sort of what's been going on in my life is kind of like physically and emotionally preparing for that. Um, we're about three months out and having a girl. So Beautiful. it's a lot of... A lot of emotions a lot of mixed emotions a lot of excitement a lot of terror but mostly excitement and i don't know just thinking a lot about how much my life is about to change and that's uh yeah that's that's kind of like what's been occupying i think most of my energy when i'm not watching writing about talking about thinking about basketball yeah that's awesome man and I think I had joked when you first told me that we're, you know, we're only a few months away from having another co-host on this show. I realized that babies don't speak immediately, but I believe that a, a wolf on baby will come out, come out of the womb ready to talk ball. Uh, yeah, uh, upping the pa- upping the Pacers fan quotient from yeah <laughs> from five to six. Wow, pack the field house. Yeah, my I, I don't have anything that sentimental to share. I'm moving um, into a condo in probably the next couple of weeks my friend is a contractor is building me a custom closet so that's that's pretty exciting <laughs> but it's it's not a child so definitely not gonna steal any of your thunder there because i think your announcement of a child's a lot more exciting about my announcement of a custom closet being built in a kitchen island um and with that i think we've hit our quota for the week of personal information that apparently listeners want to hear so what do you think you think are we ready to talk ball or you want to just keep going down this path of you want like details on the closet or something or can we talk ball i mean is it like a walk-in closet how much (laughs) i I think the important thing is like how much space do you have in there for your shoe collection he is building me a three-tiered shoe rack that sits on top of the custom closet that is not a joke yeah. No, I know it's yeah. not a joke. <laughs> it is. It's not a walk-in closet. It's like a, uh, I guess you would call it an open concept closet where it's like essentially looks like a giant wall unit. Like, you know, the kind of like things you have in your family room where your TV goes in the middle. It essentially looks like a giant wall unit with a lot of cubbies 
except some of them is for like for like hanging clothes. Some of them is where drawers will go. There's like a, a part where like a pull out pant rack goes. There's a part where like pull out hampers go through your dirty clothes. Um, so yeah, it's like, I don't know how to explain it other than that. It's like an open concept closet that looks like a giant wall unit that is part closet, part dresser, and then has a shoe rack on top of it. Yes, that's that's what that pound the rock money can buy you in this day and age. <laughs> um, all right, I think I think from there we can uh, we can move on to the the subject of this podcast and get down to it. So on this episode, I know we've talked in recent episodes about kind of the contenders or the fugazis in the east. We've talked about the contenders in the west. This episode, we wanted to talk about uh, the play-in race in the West and a group of teams that are kind of bunched up vying for seeds, basically, you know, seeds eight through 10. Um, and, and we can maybe like touch on on Dallas. That's the seven seed right now. But we also talked about them a little bit in our West Contenders pod. And I don't really think that they belong in this same tier. So um we're basically going to talk about the teams that are vying for like the eight seed essentially um or like the eight through ten seeds that that are going to be uh the final three spots in the play and mix in the west before that catch did you do you have anything to add to this buyout market <laughs> discourse that has seemingly taken over the nba twitter sphere or just i guess the nba conversation in general i'm i'm Worried maybe that like the backlash to this has has like completely overwhelmed the any kind of like hand wringing or, or gripes that even happened in the first place to the point that it's starting to feel a little bit like a straw man. Like outside of I know there's there was the Howard Beck article in SI and Tom Ziller also wrote about this in his newsletter, which Tom Ziller's newsletter is great. Uh, and if you're not subscribed, you definitely should be. But I just, I don't know how many people are actually really upset about this and, and how many people are just reacting to, like, I guess a vocal minority of people that seem to have an issue with LaMarcus Aldridge and Blake Griffin getting bought out and signing with the Nets. What do you think? Well, one, I'd say the fact that you asked me if I have anything to add uh, makes you an even better actor than I was when I <laughs> pretended that I just found out that you're expecting a child on this podcast. Because as you know, I definitely have some things to add to this conversation. In terms of whether it's a straw man or there are people out there actually upset, I was on the fence about that. And then I took a look at uh, a lot of the comments on the Scores Instagram page on the LaMarcus Aldridge post. And I can't remember, there was another one after that too and realized, oh, this is not a straw man. People are actually upset. And then my friend who who is a barber, who I went and saw her to get my haircut because this, the region she works in was allowed to open for the time being. I realized it was even less of a straw man then when she who rarely talks ball with me, unless it's like something you know, like when the Raptors were in the middle of the playoff run, like that's all anyone wanted to talk about. But other than that, she's never just randomly brought basketball up to me. And she mentioned randomly out of nowhere, uh, she asked me what was going on in the NBA because her husband was like kind of complaining about the fact that it's dumb this year 
because all these guys are just joining Brooklyn now. And then that's when I realized, okay, like, yeah, it really isn't a straw man. There are really like, maybe not hardcore fans or obviously people like us that actually like live and breathe it and cover it for a living. But at least from like a casual fan perspective, it legitimately seems to be an issue. And I take issue with that being an issue because it is preposterous to me that that people care this much about the buyout market and veterans seeking a championship going to the teams that have the best chance to win a championship. One, this isn't new. It has always been this way. Now, the only thing I can think of that makes this year more unique is the fact that the Q score, the fame level, the name recognition of the players on the buyout market was a lot bigger than usual. Maybe in a normal year, one of a guy like Aldridge or Griffin or I mean, Drummond is a completely unique case, but we'll get into that. Maybe one of those guys hits the market and the rest of them are, are more lesser known guys. The fact that Blake Griffin, LaMarcus Aldridge, who were you know all-stars only two years ago, Griffin was an all-NBA player. I suppose I can see if you're a casual fan who you know doesn't pay attention to the league like it's your job, which I understand. I guess I can get how you don't maybe realize how far those guys have dropped off and you think, what the hell? Like These guys just get to get out of their contracts and go to arguably the best team in the league or at least the most stacked team in the league. But for anyone who actually pays attention, if you're mad about this, it's just complete clownery. Is it accurate to say that the Nets can now field an entire lineup of 2019 All-Stars? Yes. But it's also disingenuous to insinuate that Blake Griffin and LaMarcus Aldridge in 2021 are anything resembling what they were in 2019. I included Blake Griffin and Andre Drummond, who ended up signing with the Lakers, and DeMarcus Cousin, who signed with the Clippers, in a post just last month that we talked about, literally about the washed-up big man market, okay? There's a reason these guys hit the buyout market. If a team out there thought Blake Griffin you know, still played at a anything resembling an all-star level, someone would have ponied up to trade for him, even with that massive player option he had for next season. LaMarcus Aldridge, if anyone out there thought that his on-court impact was more in line with his $24 million salary, one, the Spurs probably wouldn't have wanted to let him go. Two, a team would have been willing to trade something worth something to the Spurs, Aldridge wouldn't have had to give up seven plus million dollars in salary this year and the Spurs wouldn't have had to lose him for nothing. Andre Drummond, I do recognize, is a very unique case because he's not necessarily washed. He's only 27 years old and he's still putting up gaudy numbers. So I get how someone can look at that and say, how does the the defending champions with LeBron James and Anthony Davis already in tow just mid-season get to add a guy for nothing who is averaging 17 points, 13 rebounds, a couple blocks, a steal, whatever it is. But again, keep perspective. I understand it's a very unique case with Drummond, but as we've talked about so many times, Drummond's on-court impact does not match his statistical production or the salary that he had this year. And if it did, someone would have traded something for him in an expiring year that would have enticed the Cavs and they wouldn't have had to work out a buyout. DeMarcus Cousins, we've talked about. The guy literally shoots worse in the restricted area than almost every undersized guard in the league. These are not difference makers anymore. Griffin and Aldridge might have their moments in Brooklyn. They're not swinging the season. This is not loaded teams loading up unfairly in the buyout market. And then the last thing I want to say, even though I've already gone on a tangent about how these moves are actually inconsequential and people should recognize that, is that even if they were consequential, even if they do prove consequential and one of these guys pops and actually swings the season, 
I will say that if you're a fan or maybe a team that has wasted even a breath out of your life complaining about this the last week or two, I would instead suggest that you take time and take notes from teams like the Nets, Lakers, and Clippers. Because what's often lost during these complaints is that these teams are in position to get these players for a reason. And no, it's not because this is a big market for small market thing and everyone wants to be in LA or New York. The Nets under Sean Marks rose from the ashes of literally the most hopeless situation in league history. They built a scrappy and exciting young team, hoarded cap space, and it led to Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. Okay, if it was just about markets, guess what? The Knicks play in the same huge market and they play in the arena considered the mecca of basketball and their biggest free agent coup was Amari Stoudemire 11 years ago. The Lakers, yet. Did LeBron James go there a big part of it because he just wanted to be in LA and it's the Lakers? Sure, but let's not pretend like even though Anthony Davis wanted to be there, they didn't draft well and have guys like Brandon Ingram, Lonzo Ball, Josh Hart, and others to make that deal. The Clippers, you know, we've all clowned them for the amount they gave up for Paul George and whether that ends up leading to a championship with George and Leonard or not. But that was a team that over a period of time drastically changed the perception of their franchise had Shea Gilgis-Alexander and a boatload of draft capital to turn into Paul George and kind of Kawhi Leonard. So just all around, I think the anger, the whatever it is to this is just so misguided and empty and honestly very narrow-minded. The moves themselves are going to prove inconsequential, and you should know that if you're that big of a basketball fan. And these teams didn't miraculously become mid-destination like markets mid-season because they're big markets and this is unfair and the small markets are struggling. No. Do you remember when San Antonio was like the mid-season buyout destination every season? They're one of the smallest markets in the league. It's because they were a perennial contender for 20 years. Tracy McGrady went there to try to win a ring. Uh, Steven Jackson went back there to try to win another ring. LaMarcus Aldridge himself, it wasn't a mid-season buyout, but signed there as one of the marquee free agents six years ago or whatever it was. It is what it is. It's veteran players seeking a championship, going to the teams that will put them in the best position to do that. It's nothing more than that. And anyone going on about how it's unfair, whatever, like it's the same stupid complaints every year. Like everyone, everyone cries about the NBA being a star driven league of haves and haves nots until their team is the one sitting at the cool kids table. Wow. Uh, yeah, you weren't kidding. You had some thoughts. I mean, I, I don't really have too much to add to that, uh, aside from the fact that like, no no buyout guy has ever swung the title race. Like in my lifetime, or at least my memory, the only time that it's really come close is when the Sixers got Marco Bellinelli and Ursan Ilyasova. And those guys just went absolutely bananas for like two months and probably helped them win a first round series before they crashed out in the second round. And I, I don't really remember at the time anybody being up in arms about the Sixers winding up with Bellinelli and Ilyasova. I do think the name recognition here is maybe what's driving this, but I would expect LaMarcus Aldridge to play close to zero high leverage playoff minutes this year. And that's really the only part of this that was like a little bit confusing to me is like from Aldridge's perspective. And I mean, I, I don't know what he's thinking or what he wants, and it's that's totally up to him. I'm not going to judge him for it one way or another. I just don't understand how Brooklyn's even going to play all these guys. <laughs> like between DeAndre, who I think has gotten uh, you know a little bit better as the season's gone along, Nicholas mm -hmm. Claxton, who's really emerged as 
easily, I think, Brooklyn's best defensive big. And then, you know, the small ball lineups that are going to feature Jeff Green at the five or KD at the five or Bruce Brown, I guess, like however you want to define uh, them positionally, like they're going to play a little bit smaller. I just don't I just don't think there are going to be enough minutes to go around. And look, like Blake Griffin's looked, I think, pretty good in Brooklyn, um, but he's also playing 19 minutes a game. And I would imagine is going to be playing significantly less than that when KD eventually comes back. So again, I just don't, none of this really changes a whole heck of a lot. I think that the Drummond move for LA could potentially be significant because they haven't gotten, I guess, what they felt like they wanted or needed out of Marc Gasol, and and Drummond probably is going to have a role to play in some important playoff series. But look, to your point, any team that didn't want this to happen could have found a way to cobble some salaries together and trade for him if they really wanted to. But they didn't because nobody, no other team wanted to do that. And and if we're talking about like the small market GMs complaining about how this is quote unquote making the rich richer, which I think is that was the quote in the Howard Beck piece. It's like, okay, if that was really a concern, then look, Cleveland, a small market team, was under no obligation to buy Drummond out. They could have kept playing him if they wanted to, but they didn't want to keep playing him. They wanted to play Jared Allen. And Detroit didn't want to keep playing Blake Griffin. He wasn't helping their team anymore and he didn't fit with their long term vision anymore. So they bought him out. Um, and the Spurs, like, they bought out Aldridge and then probably got a player that actually helps them and fits their team better in Gorgie Jang. So I, I just, I don't really see the argument uh, for like the small market versus big market thing. And I, I feel like <laughs> we've probably already wasted too much breath talking about this because I can sit here and say, like, I don't care. This stuff doesn't bother me. And yet here we are, like, 20 minutes into this podcast and. Uh, all we've done is rail about it. So do you feel comfortable leaving leaving that there? I do. I do. I feel I have said my piece. Do you do you anticipate like I think Blake has a better chance of of maybe like having a role in a playoff series than Lamarcus does, but like do you have any kind of sense of, of what you think those guys are gonna do or what their role is gonna be in like actually important games? I agree with you with Aldred. I, I don't think he sees any high leverage moments in big games or the playoffs. Blake, I, I could see him in like a, a bench kind of like playmaking big role, but I also don't know how much of a role there really is from there because like, I mean, as you mentioned, when the deal first went down, if, if Blake Griffin at his current level of play takes minutes from Jeff Green, that's actually a downgrade for the Nets based on the way Jeff Green has played this year as a small ball five. Yes, like maybe if Jeff Green plays more minutes, Griffin can essentially like be an extension of what Jeff Green's doing, you know, in the minutes he's not on the court. But I don't know, like other than that, you know, yeah. there's only so many minutes to go around on a team that, you know, has three superstars that are going to be dominating the ball and dominating the minutes. So I... Other than the role I just envisioned for him, I really don't see it. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Scores Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. 
And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out the Score's YouTube page for an informative yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. Okay, so let's let's get into this West play-in race. Um, as of now, the Mavs are, I guess, looking likely to be part of the play-in, um, unless neither AD nor LeBron can come back anytime soon and the Lakers continue to plummet. Uh, I, I don't expect them to fall as far as the seven seed, but I suppose it's possible. Um, the Blazers could drop. They've got a really brutal schedule the rest of the way. Uh, although they're also getting healthy and I think they improved their roster with the Norm Powell trade. And frankly, Robert Covington, who got off to a, a tough start this season has really come on. He's playing unbelievable lately. So my Blazers skepticism is starting to thaw a little bit. Uh, so for now it's the Mavs and, and they are only a half game up on the Spurs for that seven seed. But I, I just, as I said off the top, I don't consider them part of this tier. I just think they're way better than these teams. And barring a major injury, I fully expect them to finish seventh or higher, especially given that they have like a, a cakewalk of a schedule remaining and Luca is playing out of his goddamn mind right now. So that leaves us with five teams uh, who are currently seated eight through 12 that are vying for the eight, nine and 10 seeds. And we can start with the Spurs who are currently the eight seed and they're two games up on Memphis. And that eight seed is going to be really important, right? Because if you get the eight, that's the difference between getting two chances to win one game uh, versus having to win two in a row. And it also means home court advantage in that second elimination game. So that's where the Spurs are at, uh, but they also have a negative scoring margin and the toughest remaining schedule of all these teams. So their spot is far from secure. Uh, Cash, what are your thoughts on the Spurs? What do you expect them from them the rest of the season? And do you think they wind up in this play-in mix? Do you think they wind up with that eight seed, what do you think? Coming into the season, I think I and probably both of us would have said out of the five teams we're discussing, well, we're talking Sacramento as well. So I guess the Spurs would have been fourth out of these five coming into the year. Um, now we're deep enough into the season where I don't think you can just play this off as, or you know, shrug this off as some small sample size theater and, and they're just going to completely fold down the stretch. I think they've found something, you know, with some smaller lineups, with DeRozan being, you know, much more of a point forward, if you want to call him, kind of a point guard. Their shooting volume in terms of, you know, and where they're getting their shots from is still a little antiquated. They're still not a great shooting team. They don't take enough threes, but to their credit, they're making it work. You know, I like the fact that Jakob Pertle is taking on a much larger role within their system now and is pretty much proving himself as a starting center in the NBA. I mean, the free throws are still brutal, but I think he's giving you enough of a lot of other things to be a starting center. I feel like they've figured something out and there's no reason for me to believe it's going to completely fall off other than what you mentioned with the fact that they have the toughest remaining schedule of these teams. But, you know, if you if you look at what they've got on paper, if you look at who DeRozan has been again this season and what Pirtle is becoming, you know, they still have arguably the greatest coach in basketball history leading the charge. 
And then, you know, th- that two-game cushion you mentioned, that's big. I realize two games is only two games, and there's still, you know, whatever it is left, almost 30 games left. But two games is a cushion in a, in a race this tight. I, I would be surprised if they hang on to the eight seed. I really would. But I think they have enough that they're going to, they're going to stick in the top 10. That means that two of the teams we're discussing other than Spurs are going to be left out. And if it's one of New Orleans or Memphis and San Antonio finishes the season ahead of them, that's a surprise. You know, Sacramento, not as much, but hell, if it's the Warriors, that's a huge surprise to me. I think they've been a surprising team and I can understand why someone might lose faith in them eventually. But like I said, just at a certain point, you kind of have to believe in what a team has been for the majority of a season. And I, I believe in what the Spurs are, which is it, around a 500 team that maybe is slightly outperformed their point differential, but for the most part should slot in pretty much where they are right now, maybe give or take a spot. So yeah, just quickly to illustrate how soft their schedule has been to this point, they have played 45 games in total and only 17 of them have come against teams who are 500 or better. And that is the fewest number of of those games that any team in the league has played. So things are going to get considerably more difficult for them. And, you know, look, to, to your point about, first of all, Pirtle, I think, is making the most of his starting opportunity. I think it's great to see because I feel like he has deserved that opportunity for a while. I think this team makes a lot more sense with him starting uh, as opposed to Aldridge. He has made their defense so much better. Uh, he, he's truly like one of the best rim protectors in the entire NBA. He also just like moves his feet really well and defends well in space. And obviously the the free throw shoot the free throw shooting is a concern because teams are starting to go to the hack a yak late in games. And often that leads to him having to come off the floor. And so as they get into starting to play some like high leverage games where they're going to be jockeying for playoff position, uh, you know, if they have to close games with him on the bench, then that could be an issue uh, that's going to compromise their defense. And I, I don't know that it's going to compromise their offense, but like one of the, one of the reasons the Spurs offense is so pedestrian is like they are, I think they're 27th in the league in offensive rebound rate. And that's with Pirtle being also like one of the best offensive rebounders in the league. So if you leave him on the bench, then you're really not getting any extra possessions. And I think he, he's like a pretty important part of their team. And the fact that he just like can't make a free throw. I think he airballed two in a row last night. So that's maybe a bit of a concern. But really, apart from that, I think he's played terrific. And one other thing I've noticed about their defense, which has been like vastly improved from where it was the last two years, is that they're switching quite a bit, which seems new to me. And... Maybe that's just anecdotal, but I feel like they've never been a super switch happy team before. And I think it makes a lot of sense given their personnel because look, DeRozan is not, he's not a good one-on-one defender, but I think he's way better as a one-on-one defender than as a team defender. And so if you're sort of switching a lot of stuff that simplifies, I think the scheme a little bit where you're able to kind of keep the ball in front and you're staying out of rotation and that allows him to just sort of focus on his assignment. And I think the same is true of Keldon Johnson, who, you know, to me is also just way, way better as an on-ball defender than an off-ball defender. And then obviously, you know, you have DeJounte Murray who can do anything defensively, but if you're switching, like he, you know, you feel comfortable with him switching on to anybody, right? 
And I think instrumental to that is the fact that Pirtle can actually hold his own switching out on the perimeter. So I think that's the right approach for them. It's unclear sometimes with their communication, whether they are actually sort of like scheming or planning to switch or if they're just making reads on the fly because they do have communication breakdowns a decent amount. Like like sometimes when they're playing drop, uh, the on-ball defender will peel off and execute a late switch, but like the big man will just keep dropping. Or sometimes both defenders will stick with the screener. Sometimes both of them pursue the ball. They, ha- they had a bad breakdown last night uh, where they left Harrison Barnes wide open under the basket because two guys went after the ball. Um, but when they switch well, like their defense looks awesome. And I think that's the thing. If they're going to stay in the eight seed or if they're just going to like remain in uh, the playoff tournament in general, uh, the, the defense is the thing I think that's going to have to carry them because the offense is pretty pedestrian. Like you mentioned, they still don't shoot enough threes. Um, they they don't have really enough spacing. And I guess the one thing that really helps them is they never, ever turn the ball over. But I, I almost think that's counterbalanced by the fact that they're, like they're not losing possessions by kicking the ball around, but they're also not generating any extra possessions on the offensive glass. So they just sort of, level out as like a solidly below average offense and that that then the question just becomes like do you trust their defense enough to get them over the finish line you know as great as i think purtle is at that end as great as murray is at that end i don't know how much faith i have in in a defense that uh is like playing someone like demar Derozan big minutes and so yeah i actually i don't i don't think that they're gonna finish in the eight seed i don't think they'll fall out of the top 10 entirely but I do think one of these teams is ultimately going to supplant them for that that very important eighth spot. I think they stick in the play-in, but don't make the playoffs. Yeah, that that feels about right to me. I mean, I, I think a couple things could change that. Like if Derek White fully comes around, he, he's had a pretty disappointing season to this point. Um, they've inserted him into the starting lineup, and I think he's started to turn it around and get some of his mojo back. He's getting to the free throw line a lot more lately and, and just like showing a little bit more burst in general, but he still hasn't shot the ball particularly well. And they really need him to like, it, he is, uh, I mean, maybe like uh, out of their starters, at least like he's their only high volume three point shooter. Obviously there's Patty Mills off of the bench, but like they, they need him <laughs> to, to shoot the ball well. Uh, and they need him, I think to be, you know, like a, a secondary playmaker offensively and, Thus far, I don't think they've gotten what they need out of him, but you know that I am a big believer in Derek White. So Mm -hmm. if he can kind of get it back on track, then I think that could make a big difference. You want to talk Grizzlies, who you wrote an incredible piece about this week? Uh, Thank you. Yeah, sure. Let's let's do that. They're um, 22 and 23. They're tied with the Warriors for ninth. As I mentioned, two games back of the Spurs. And... I think their success starts at the defensive end of the floor. And I think if we're talking, you know, if we're comparing them to the Spurs, who are, are sort of in the same boat where their offense is only okay, but their defense has been very solid, I have a lot more faith in the Grizzlies defense holding up than I do in the Spurs, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think, aren't they top five in defensive rating right now? I think last I checked last night, they were fifth or sixth. You know, they struggle to score. But their defense is definitely dependable. I think what's interesting to me about the Grizzlies is, you know, they had this crazy surprising season last year where even though they ultimately fell on the play-in with the Blazers, 
They looked like a playoff team pretty much all year, despite the fact we thought they were going to be one of the worst teams in the league. Ja was an absolute revelation. And then they come back this year, and, and no one's really like quite sure what to expect. Can they actually be that team again? Is there going to be a drop-off where they come back to earth? And for the most part, while they are a game under 500, I think they've been a, a very similar team to last year. The big difference is that, you know, if you've really watched this team closely, look, I, I love Jaws' game. I, I think he's going to be a great player. I've praised him plenty of times for having this very unique and, and rare gift and ability to play fast, but also in control. But I think we have to admit he has had a disappointing season. He's been way less efficient than last year. You know, he's really struggled to shoot the ball. And he just hasn't been quite as impactful. But why that's interesting to me is because despite that, the Grizzlies are still very similar to the team they were last year. And I think a big part of that is because they have this dependable defense that just gets the job done night in and night out. Call it blind faith in job, but I, I do really think that as long as that defense continues to hold up and the Grizzlies like stay in the mix, which they should, I think we will. And, and you are starting to see it. Jaw's been a little better the last couple of weeks. I think you will see a big kind of, not like a takeover where it's his coming out party, but I think he will rise to the occasion as they go down the stretch of the season. And I think you're already starting to see hints of that. And I think between that and their defense, you know, I'm a big fan of Bain, uh, good shooter, good young player, Valanchunas. I mean, I guess there's the same questions there where it's like, you know, he's putting up numbers and... Like he's a good big man, but there are certain defensive questions to be asked of him and whether he can get played off the court. And then at the same time, you know, you look at the minutes he's playing for this team. And again, we're talking about them being a top five or top six defense in the league. You know, the piece I wrote kind of focused on their perimeter rotation and the questions that they're going to have to answer moving forward. And what, you know, what's interesting to me is like their perimeter rotation is very light on shooting. Like they have three above average three-point shooters on the roster in Bain, uh, DeAnthony Melton, who's having a great year and making, I think, some really important strides, uh, and Grayson Allen. And they all basically play the same position. None of them plays more than 24 minutes a game. So a lot of the time they're playing with like one real shooting threat on the floor. And the fact that they've managed to get by with, I think, the 19th or 20th ranked offense in the league is actually pretty impressive when you consider that. Um, a big reason for that is they get out and transition a ton. And a big reason they get out and transition so much is that they force a ton of turnovers. And they do that because those same perimeter guys who kind of struggle offensively, you know, not just with the lack of shooting, but also a lack of self-creation, um, a lack really of any kind of shooting off of the dribble, uh, not a ton of rim, pr- rim pressure, one of the lowest free throw rates in the league. They're trying to strike a balance there because... Those guys struggle offensively, but they are hellhounds at the defensive end, you know? And, and I think Dylan Brooks maybe epitomizes that that struggle for balance more than anybody because he takes the second most shots on the team. He's taking more than 15 shots a game, and yet he has an effective field goal percentage of 45%, which is, like league average is like close to 54%. It's very, very bad. His shot selection is extremely questionable. He takes a lot of bad long twos early in the clock. He has like a bit of tunnel vision where like if he's playing pick and roll, he will often look off the roll man to shoot kind of like an off-balance floater. Um, It's been rough for him offensively, but defensively he is 
I think he's going to have a case for inclusion in in the all defensive conversation on one of the all defensive teams, whatever you want to say about you know where he fits into the best perimeter defenders in the league. I think he he's put himself in that mix because first of all, his versatility, like he can guard almost anybody. Like when they played uh, the Bucks a few weeks back, he was the primary on Giannis and did, I thought, a fantastic job. And then it's like the next two games, he is guarding Bradley Beal and Jamal Murray. And it's like two completely different types of assignment, right? It's chasing guys through mazes of screens. And he is, you know, as good at ball denial and chasing through screens, I think, as pretty much anybody in the league. And then on the other hand, you know, using his strength and his low center of gravity and like nobody gets into a stance like Dylan Brooks, right? He gets so low. Um, and uses that strength to, you know, kind of outmuscle guys uh, who are bigger than him. And he can do all of that. And uh, he has been, you know, arguably the linchpin of their defense. And I think that's, that's kind of unique, right? Because most good defenses you see built from the inside out. And I don't think the Grizzlies are like a bad interior defensive team. But I do think that they sort of build their defense from the outside in where they're using their perimeter defenders almost to protect their interior defenders a little bit rather than the alternative. Between Brooks um, and Melton, who honestly, you know, I think he could be part of that same all-defensive conversation if he played more, and Tyus Jones, Kyle Anderson. Uh, honestly, like, I feel like Grayson Allen has a bad rep, but, like, he he's not the most physically imposing defender, but, like, he's a smart defender. He knows where to be. He makes the right rotations. Um Desmond Bain, kind of the same thing, like solid team defender, even if his on-ball defense isn't there yet. So I just, I really do believe in that defense. I think the big questions for this team are at the offensive end. And something I wrote about in that piece is like, I think the team-wide obsession with floaters, maybe last year when this was just sort of a team that came out of nowhere and surprised some people and was better than anyone expected and didn't have any expectations, was this kind of like endearing quirk. It's now become like a little bit of a troubling dependency where they are literally shooting more floaters than any team in recorded history. It's affecting like, you know, the fact that they never get to the free throw line. I think a big reason for that is like, they don't try to get all the way to the rim, right? They're, they're pretty contact averse. Their drives tend to stop short and turn into those floaters. Um, and those floaters are so you know they're coming at the cost not only of rim shots and free throws but also at three uh, of three pointers, and I think that just suppresses and limits how efficient their offense can ultimately be. And obviously, a lot of that is the result of the fact that they don't have enough floor spacing to allow those driving lanes. Um, and that's I think you know Jaron Jackson is slated to come back in late April. I think that's going to help a lot. It should help a lot. I, I think we're both Melton fans, and I. Th- I think we should brag about the fact that when the trade originally went down with Phoenix, which, you know, I think a lot of people saw as the Josh Jackson trade, you and I on Pound the Rock were probably two of the only people in the world that liked the deal from the Melton Grizzlies perspective and even the Javon Carter perspective, Phoenix wise. So that there's me tooting our own horn, but also just great. I, I know you mentioned that Grayson Allen gets a lot of hate and look, I get it. I get that. In college, especially dangerous, dirty plays. And I'm not absolving him from that, but he was young. He did some dumb things on the court. I just want to say, I like Grayson Allen, man. He is, he defends his ass off, shoots the ball well, and pisses people off. And I think that's the kind of, 
What's that? You need guys like that. You do. And I think I think if you talk to a lot of his teammates, they would agree with that. With the fact that not only do you need guys like that, but that you love playing with a guy like that. Again, not saying he should be doing anything dirty, which he's done a lot less in the NBA. Bad stuff he has to get out of his game. But just being the guy that pisses people off, defends his butt off, shoots well, there are roles for guys like that for a very long time. And he can carve out a very long NBA career because of that. Yeah, the one thing I'd add is I'm a little curious sort of what their big man rotation is going to look like when Jackson does come back. Because... I don't think he should be starting at the five, right? Like JV's rebounding and interior scoring, I think is way too important to them. So maybe you start him at the four and then that means moving, I guess, either Kyle Anderson or Grayson Allen to the bench and then staggering Jaron and JV's minutes. So Jaron is basically playing the five with their transitional lineups. And then that basically means uh, Xavier Tillman being out of the rotation. Which is too bad because I think Tillman's been been really solid this year. But they've got a lot of good young players, man. They do, and that's why I kind of mentioned this at the end of that piece. But like, I think they're going to be ripe for a consolidation trade at some point. You know, whether it happens this off season or a little bit further down the line, I think they're primed for that kind of trade where where they swap, you know, two or three of those guys for one impact type of player. You know, also interesting is that they have this $13 million team option for Justice Winslow for next year. And I've been a big Winslow fan. Like I was, <laughs> I was really happy when they made that deal, uh, even though it seemed like Winslow, you know, wasn't necessarily going to play for them last year. And I acknowledge that it meant taking a step back last season. I thought that he was going to be a great fit and could really help them. But man, it, like he's been super disappointing. And not defensively, like defensively, he's been a big part of that airtight perimeter D, but like offensively, it's been a complete mess. I mean, like he has shot the ball terribly. He can't finish at the rim. His decision-making has been super questionable. So I don't know, is that, is that cutting bait too early? Like he's coming back from that hip injury too. So, you know, does he deserve another season at 13 million to, to kind of prove himself maybe as like a long-term piece here? Because if, if they decline that team option they've got 25 million dollars in cap space basically to work with i think it would be cutting bait too early and i think they might regret it later but at the same time when you've got the amount of young talent they've got when you maybe want to use your cap space in a different way and and add to the team and take another step i think it's also defensible that they might have to cut bait early you know yeah i think the the question just then becomes you know what how are they going to use that space? You know, right. are they going to pursue a free agent? I threw Norm Powell out there and, mm-hmm. and I know we mentioned uh, man, him I as, think, as a possible destination for him at the deadline, but I think that'd be a great fit. I think Memphis might fit Norm Powell's skill set almost better than any other team this year in, in the free agent market. He just gives them exactly what they need as far as like the shooting would obviously be huge for them, but then it's also a guy who can really attack a closeout who is going to get all the way to the basket and not be forced to kind of stop short for a floater. Like he can get all the way to the rim. His free throw rate has skyrocketed this season. Uh, and and he could actually provide them some really necessary rim pressure. So that's kind of why I see him as a fit there. And they have the defense, the team defense to mask his issues on that end. Right. And like, you know, Norm's issues defensively have always been in more of a team context than like, I think he's fine on the ball. And... 
uh, like you said, I think that, you know, they do have the defensive infrastructure to mitigate his off ball deficiencies in the same way that, you know, up until this year, basically the Raptors had done. I, I just, you know, the Grizzlies have obviously been burned by playing the free agent game in the past, uh, most notably in 2016. So I don't know how eager they're going to be to jump into that when they have this young team that maybe they think can, you know, develop internally uh, and, you know, rather than getting impatient and splurging on a free agent who is, you know, more of like a, more of a role player than a star, um, maybe, maybe they would prefer to go just like the sort of draft and develop route. And, and I think that would be defensible as well. And they could still cut bait on Winslow and use that cap space to like take on a bad contract and pull in a draft asset, right? Like there are a lot of profitable uses of cap space where I just don't know just with how bad Winslow has been offensively this year. I don't know if they can justify picking up that team option as sad as it is for me to say that. Cause I am a big fan of his game. Okay. Let's talk warriors. Here's what it boils down to for the Warriors: is Steph Curry healthy. If we're, if we're talking about them in the context of this race, that's what it boils down to. If Steph Curry's healthy, they could be the best team of this bunch and finish eighth and just need to win one play-in game, which I think they would do. If Steph Curry's not healthy, they will be the worst of these five, even below Sacramento. Like He's obviously not going to have a chance to win the award because the Warriors are nowhere near good enough on a team level. But Steph Curry's legit doing like MVP shit this season, man. The way he elevates the floor and ceiling of this team is spectacular. The numbers don't tell the whole story, but they're 22 and 18 with him in the lineup. Okay. That's, you know, a 44, 45 win team in a normal season. They're a one in six without him. When he's on the court, they have a net rating that would rank ninth overall. When he's not on the court, they have a net rating that would rank 28th overall. I feel like even those numbers don't do it justice enough. There, there are so few threats on this team when Steph's not on the court. They're a lot more dangerous, obviously, and just scary when he is. Draymond coming back early in the season obviously changed things for both Steph and the team, but everything still clearly revolves around Steph. Wiseman, it's just interesting like how they're using him because while he does have his moments, and I'm still a big believer in his upside, there are a lot of nights where you can tell he just like isn't up to speed yet, basketball IQ-wise and just fit-wise and comfort-wise as an NBA big man. And so on one hand, you think, okay, well, they can't have him out there because they are in this playoff race. But then on the other hand, you're like, okay, look, Clay's not there this season. They're not competing for anything of significance other than like a very low playoff seed. Why not? Maybe just let him play and learn through his mistakes. And if that costs you, maybe you finish 10th instead of 8th, like so be it. But if, if it means it's a learning experience for Wiseman, I don't know. I think this team can go all over the place, but all that kind of peripheral stuff, notwithstanding, it just comes down to Steph. Is he healthy? Is he not healthy? If he is, I think they get in the West playoffs. If he's not, they don't have a shot in hell. Yeah, and that Wiseman thing just really speaks to how difficult it is to thread that needle and and try and build on two timelines at once. You know what I mean? Like, And I think they had to know that when they drafted him. When they opted to keep that pick rather than flipping it, it's interesting actually because... We we saw that as a very safe pick, right? I think that was the popular consensus was like, this guy has the physical tools and he's playing a role where he's really not going to be asked to do too much. And the floor is going to be super high. 
And I don't, I don't think that's quite borne out. You know, the floor has been pretty low. Bad Wiseman games have been very, very bad. And yeah. the Warriors have gotten absolutely trucked in his minutes this season. So it hasn't quite worked out that way where there's been this safe, high floor aspect of that pick. It's like they've really had to choose how much they want to commit to his development this season and how much they want to focus on just being as good as they can be in the here and now and getting into the playoffs this year in what could be, I mean, look, Steph's 33, man. Like, is he going to have another MVP caliber season ever? Like maybe, but maybe not. So I think they put themselves in a really difficult spot in that way, which is why, you know, I was a proponent of them maybe looking to flip that pick or looking to flip Wiseman for somebody like a Nikola Vucevic who could really give the Warriors like an actual, you know, potential championship window in the next couple of years as Steph sort of enters the twilight of his career, or at least the twilight of his prime. Um, but as it is, it's it's been a real challenge, I think. And like they they have been at their best with Draymond at the five, but they've recently reinserted Wiseman back into the starting lineup, I guess showing some commitment to his growth this season. Um, and Steve Kerr also talked uh, recently, I think after that Bulls game, about how they want to focus on like simplifying the offense a little bit for Wiseman's sake, at least in part for Wiseman's sake, just like using him more in like high pick and roll, you know, rather than running all their ornate, uh, motion stuff where Steph is playing off of the ball. I think that's probably the right approach, but I think there are complications that come along with that as well. Uh, because, you know, not only does does having Steph play off of the ball, I think maximize Draymond, because if Draymond has the ball in his hands, I think you're amplifying his strengths and mitigating his kind of deficiencies. But I also think, I don't know, it makes it a little bit more difficult for the defense. Like they, they can, I guess deny Steph the ball and force like other warriors to make plays. But if you're running just like pick and rolls for Steph over and over and over again, like what's stopping a defense from just like blitzing him every single time and like daring the rest of the warriors to make the best of that advantage that he's creating. If, if Steph's healthy concerns, notwithstanding about the rest of the team, where do you see this team finishing? They're 10th right now, two games back of the Spurs for eighth. They're also only a game and a half clear of the Kings and Pelicans who we're going to talk about next. So say Steph stays healthy. The team just is what they are right now the remainder of the season. Um, Ninth, I guess. They could get to eighth. They've got a soft schedule the rest of the way. Yeah. And and they have the best player out of all these right. teams. Yeah, I mean, I think they could definitely get up to eighth. They're also like, you know, they're pretty deep. Even though... Like they basically run a ten or eleven man rotation, and the guys at the at like the back end of that rotation are pretty solid. Kent Bazemore, I think, has quietly had a, a very good role player season, and arguably has a case to be playing more. If anything, uh, Jordan Poole has been like so so much better in year two than he was as a rookie. But like they have that depth, I guess, but it's kind of like fake depth also because it's such a huge drop off from Steph and Draymond right. to everyone else, um, and even Draymond, right? Like. He's probably the second best offensive player on the team. Would you agree with that? Yeah, and it's... <laughs> like, that's, I mean, a, that's a problem. Yeah. When your second best offensive player derives every ounce of their offensive value from doing everything but shooting and scoring, yeah, that's a problem. <laughs> yeah. 
Right. And that's, you know, obviously Draymond has some very important underappreciated offensive skills. And we've talked about that a lot. I mean, I wrote a whole feature about it a few weeks ago. He's, ha- he's having his best playmaking season. So I'm not saying he's a bad offensive player, but he's a complimentary offensive player. He's a complete non-scorer who can't shoot, doesn't create any shots for himself and generally doesn't create advantages. Like he's, he's fantastic at capitalizing on advantages created by others, but given his limitations for him to be your second best offensive player is not where you want to be. No, certainly not. <laughs> so I don't know, man, like, like all of these teams are so, so flawed. And I just think the Warriors by virtue of having Steph and Steph having the season that he's having, I guess that's maybe the one thing that is like a tiebreaker here where I'm like, uh, they, they might be the team that I picked to finish eighth. And their, their defense has been actually good. Like for most of the season. Um, and, and Draymond obviously is a huge part of that, but like Wiggins sort of under the radar is having a really good defensive season. Ubre, I think has been solid at that end of the floor. Wiseman, obviously very, very hit or miss, but the combination of them having a solid defense and then Steph Curry at the offensive end, I think that probably makes them the favorite to ultimately wind up in eighth. Yeah. Especially when we're talking about like a group of flawed teams in general, Mm -hmm. um, all right, what do you think of Sacramento? I mean, I thought this team was going to be the worst team in the in in the West coming into the year, not because not because they have the least amount of talent, but because it's just there's a gong show there, and they've been surprising. I, I still believe that they should be building around Fox and Halliburton, you know, going forward, and not completely giving up on everyone else. But you know, I, I still think they should trade at least one of Barnes or Heald. I guess now it'll, it would be this off season instead of at the deadline. I don't think Heald has a, any trade value at all. Then I guess you trade Barnes. I mean, he's had a Barnes has had a terrific season. He's had his best season. But like, I don't know. Is he going to be like, how much do you trust that this is just who he is now going forward? And also, like, by the time Fox and Halliburton are, say, good enough between the two of them to be foundational contending pieces, like, what's Harrison Barnes going to be? What's his contract even going to be at that point? So if we're acknowledging Heal doesn't have trade value, I'd still move him in the off season, build around Halliburton and Fox. But for right now, they they do actually have enough talent to compete in this group. As we've seen throughout the season, Halliburton was a great draft day steal. Fox continues to elevate his game in the last like month or so. He's just been on fire. Holmes is having a terrific season. And I still can't believe there, there wasn't a contender out there that, you know, didn't pony up for him or, or unless maybe Sacramento just set the price for him really high. I don't know. Usually a team I expected to be as bad as I, I expected the Kings would be. If they're in this position at this point of the season, I would say, okay, just wait. They'll drop off. They'll drop off. But again, if you've actually like watched this season, we've acknowledged that other teams in this group are flawed too. Whether they actually get into the top 10, I wouldn't bet on it. But I also think they do have staying power if we're just talking about the race in general. like I don't think there's some massive drop-off coming where they're completely out of it in like two weeks. I mean, look, they, they still have what registers as the worst defense of all time. <laughs> I I have kind of felt, you know, a couple episodes ago, I was saying how, like, I, I didn't think that Portland's defense should be as bad as it was. But watching it, I also, it just sort of, like, looked really bad, even though individually, like, their players are not bad defenders, or at least a lot of them aren't bad defenders. I feel very similarly about the Kings in that, you know, on an individual level, you look at their players and it's like, 
their defense should not be the worst of all time. They have good defenders on the team, or at least adequate defenders on the team. Interestingly enough, over their last nine games, they have ranked uh, 22nd in the NBA, you know, somewhat respectable and a big improvement. So what is significant about that seemingly arbitrary nine-game sample, you might ask? Well, Marvin Bagley has missed all of those games with a hand injury, and I don't think that the defensive uptick during that stretch is a coincidence. I think they are way better defending when he's not part of their rotation. I will say, like, they've looked a lot better defending in the half court to me, but they've still been a complete mess in transition. And that's just one of those things where it's like, transition defense really just comes down to, like, effort and communication. So it's not something that I feel like I can really like explain with any any kind of like high level analysis like they just need to be better at getting back and communicating and transition and i will say like buddy healed is still terrible at the defensive end like even when he's in the right spot he just doesn't play with any kind of force or physicality he doesn't really impact the ball at all i think De'Aaron fox has to eat some of that too like he should be better than he is defensively given his physical tools and as much as he is capable of making some pretty extraordinary plays, you know, he'll, he'll get his share of like highlight reel chase down blocks and whatnot, but he also just gets wiped out on screens far too often. He doesn't do a ton for you as a help guy. So that's the kind of like, yeah, you can look up and down the roster and be like, you know, Rashawn Holmes is actually a pretty good backline defender. Harrison Barnes is, I think, perfectly adequate. Halliburton for rookie is really solid. And, you know, then they, they've got guys coming off of the bench who I think can defend like DeLon Wright, who I think was a nice addition for them at the deadline. I just uh, like you look at the roster and it does not scream worst defense of all time. But then you watch it in practice and it's like they're really all over the map. From a team, at least record wise, overachieving compared to where I thought they'd be to a team kind of underachieving. You talk about Sacramento having the worst defense of all time, which statistically they do. What if I told you that in terms of opponents shooting, opponents' effective field goal percentage, there is a team tied with the Sacramento Kings, allowing 55.8% effective field goal shooting, and it's the New Orleans Pelicans. Hmm. In terms of opponents shooting, they are just as bad as the worst defense we've ever seen. Now, the difference is that the Pelicans are an outstanding rebounding team don't allow as many second chance opportunities to Sacramento. They don't put teams on the line as much. So obviously as a whole, the defense isn't as bad, but the base of the defense, you know, preventing the other team from making buckets, pretty much just as bad. And it's a lot more disappointing in New Orleans case. You know, they, they got off to the terrible start last year. Then Zion comes along, doesn't have enough time to really make enough of an impact. This year, they don't really have that excuse. They got off to another bad start production wise, efficiency wise, Zion is Honestly, maybe like a once in a lifetime talent from that perspective. Definitely a once in a generation talent from just a finishing and efficiency perspective. We've talked a few times this season about how kind of inattentive, how much he lacks effort on that, on the defensive end and how much he still has to grow. I think his defense has gotten better as the season's gone along. I think he in general continues to grow as a basketball player as the season goes along. And I'm at the point where I don't really have many complaints anymore from for for Zion. I think he's taking the steps necessary to show that he this guy is a franchise talent. Ingram has been up and down. You know, he started well, had a bit of a dip. Now he's playing well again. Lonzo's been the same. They ended up keeping him through the deadline. David Griffin said he's 
you know, Lonzo's committed to New Orleans long-term. I just think whether it's Ingram, whether it's Lonzo, I guess even Zion in a way, their up and down season is just very reminiscent of the team in general. Like you look at this team and it's win two, lose two, win three, lose three. Oh, they've taken a step forward. Here they come. They finally figured it out. And a week later, they have the longest losing streak in the league. And it's like three or four games. And then you think, oh man, they're really falling apart. And then they come up with like a couple big results. And Zion has the game of his life again. And you think, okay, here they come again. Like the I don't know if I remember a team being as consistently inconsistent as this year's Pelicans team has been. And, you know, I talked earlier in the season about just their unprecedented math problem and the three-point discrepancy. For a good chunk of the season, they had literally the worst discrepancy in terms of three-point attempts versus opponent three-point attempts in NBA history. It's not quite that bad anymore, but even just in terms of makes, in terms of points scored and points allowed from the three-point line there's still you know i think like minus 11 point something per game that is still a very hard math problem to overcome in 2021 so there's a bunch of things with this team the team in general is inconsistent they can't really stop anybody on the defensive end and i guess that in itself kind of speaks to zion right like they're pretty unstoppable on the offensive end but they can't stop anybody on the other end and it's they've almost taken on the identity of their young franchise player yeah, I mean, the consistently inconsistent is a good way to put it. Like, it's just really hard, I think, to take the measure of this team because they kind of look so different from one moment to the next. You know, not even like one game to the next. Like, sometimes in the same game, they can look like two completely different teams. You know, they had that game, I think, where they came back from something like 25 down in the second half to beat Boston. And then they also had a game just like a couple weeks after that where they blew, I think, <laughs> a 17-point lead against the Blazers in like the last six minutes. They're sort of this average team that basically never actually plays average basketball. They just fluctuate between being great and being terrible with no in-between. That just makes it hard, I think, like if we're projecting forward and we're like, okay, is this is this the team that's going to wind up in one of those play-in spots? Like, are they going to wind up in the playoffs proper? I'm tempted to say yes, because like the, the top-end talent is there. Even though I'm not, as you know, you know, and I've never have been a huge Brandon Ingram believer. Holy crap, Zion. Like, it's ridiculous what he is doing right now. It's ridiculous. The extent to which everybody knows what he's going to do and what he is trying to do, you know, which is basically to, like, get going to the rim and get to his left hand and are still totally powerless to stop him from doing that is astonishing. Coming into the league, I I sort of expected him to play more of this on-ball role uh, and, and like conceived of him kind of like as a, as a Giannis-like offensive player. And we didn't really see that last season. I think a big reason for that was just like his handle wasn't good last year. Like when he tried to handle the ball, it was kind of a mess. And now obviously he's smoothed that out and the Pelicans have put the ball in his hands and have him running offense, running pick and roll. And, and that's just been a really successful formula for them. Like I, you know, much like I have faith in the Grizzlies defense sustaining itself from here on out, like I have just as much faith, if not more so in the Pelicans offense, continuing to be one of the best in the league for the rest of the season. So then the question becomes like, can their defense hold up? I think they've had like maybe a little bit of like bad luck as far as opponent three-point shooting. And because their scheme dictates that they give up a ton of opponent threes, like that's just really burned them. 
So maybe if they just like get a little bit more fortunate down the stretch with opponent shooting, then that can make a big difference. I wouldn't be at all surprised if they went on a run in the second half and wound up as the eighth seed, but I also wouldn't be at all surprised if they wound up like in 11th and missed the plan altogether. They haven't had a run where they've been good enough for a long enough time to truly make me believe they have that kind of run in them, you know? Now, do I think they can have another hot week or so? Yeah, and win three or four in a row and like get up to ninth and be a half game clear. But I, I just... I need to see it to believe it with this team in terms of them putting together a long enough stretch of consistently good, even solid basketball to believe that they will even crack the top 10 at this point, let alone win playing games to get into the playoffs proper. Even though talent wise, they should be in that mix. Like if I had to bet on it right now, I would probably bet on them missing out on even the play in. Missing, yeah, I I wouldn't go that far. I think they wind up in the play-in. I, I think they're too talented not to. So then I guess I, okay. I'd have to say, like, which of these teams is going to fall out of the play-in mix? And that's really tough to do as well. All right, so let's let's do that then. You're um, saying the Pelicans get in. That means, I'm assuming you we agree the Kings are going to not get into the, even the play-in, right? I wouldn't pick them to, no. Okay, so we're saying the Pelicans are in. So that means one of the Spurs, Grizzlies, or Warriors, in your mind, is falling out. Which teams are going to be? I'm going to say the Spurs. Yeah. Like they they have a fairly comfortable cushion, but you know, I mentioned the the sort of schedule disparity and how much that's going to change in the next few weeks and I just don't like comparing these teams on paper. Yeah, I think that's I think that might be the team that I have the least amount of faith in. As much as I've like enjoyed them this season and think like there's a lot to be optimistic about with that team long term. I don't know, in the here and now, I think yeah, I I'm I'm going to pick them to miss out. Like the, the they're in 8th right now with with a two game lead and I think they're going to they're they're going to fall out of the top 10 entirely. Wow. So you've got the Spurs and the Kings missing out on the play in. Who do you have actually making the playoffs proper out of out of these five teams because only one of them can. Uh Okay, I'm going to because I said at the start of the season, remember when we did bold predictions and one of mine was that yeah. the Grizzlies were going to be better than the Warriors? Yep. I'm going to pick the Grizz to get that eight seed. I like that. Um, I, I think a lot of that will depend on how good Jaron Jackson is when he comes back, you know, after this long layoff. But if he is anything close to what he was in the bubble, I think he just solves so many problems for them. And... I mean, you know, like I said, I have a lot of faith in their defense. Uh, so if he can kind of come back and help open things up for them offensively, get them shooting more threes, open up those driving lanes, you know, playing the two-man game with Ja, I think uh, I think that might be the best team out of this bunch. Honestly, I don't disagree. And I kind of want to see that because I think it'd be cool for John, the Grizzlies to make up for last year and get into the playoffs by winning the play in this year, you know, and kind of mm -hmm. climbing the ladder as opposed to falling off it like they did last year. I think the Grizzlies and Warriors will end up playing for the final spot. And I think the Spurs will at least get in the play in. And I think, I think the Pelicans and Kings just as they are now end up outside the top 10. And obviously that, is a lot more disappointing for New Orleans than it is for Sacramento. I mean, is it though? Like the Kings basically 
held on to their guys at the deadline because they wanted to make this push because they haven't made the playoffs in 15 years. I almost feel like it would be more disappointing for them than for any of these teams to miss out, given the stock they put into making it this season. That's actually pretty fair. I mean, look, Holmes could be a part of their long-term future. Barnes is only 28, so it's not like... You know, if they don't move him now, they won't have an opportunity to, or like he can't help them in the next couple of years. So it's not like holding on to those guys was purely a play for getting into the playoffs this year. But I just think, man, like 15 years without the playoffs, like it just, it's got to have a compounding effect on the psyche of like that team and the fan base and the front office. Yeah, that, that streak's going to keep going. Let's be honest. <laughs> I do think... They are, in my mind, definitely the worst of these teams. Yeah. All right. So, Cash, unless you have anything else you want to say about these five teams, I think we can leave that there. Do you have a fan shout-out or multiple fan shout-outs for us this week? Okay, well, I already did one shout-out at the beginning of the episode uh, to Mars from Atlanta on SoundCloud, who had commented last week or a couple weeks ago that he and others actually wanted to hear more about our personal lives. So I'll do one shout out now, which gives us two for the week. And I've got two more in the chamber for next week as well. But this week's end of show shout out is going to go to Parmvir Gotra at ParmG730 on Twitter, who, when I tweeted some thread about the Raptors, maybe like a week, week and a half ago, he quote tweeted that tweet and agreed with the thread, but then also added to check out the podcast, which I co-host with you called Pound the Rock. So he put that out to his followers. I noted that, faved the tweet, and made sure that we got Parmvir a shout out because like all of our listeners, we appreciate him. If like Parmvir, you are a fan of Pound the Rock, let us know and reach out to us on social media, leave a comment either on SoundCloud or wherever. And we will try to get you a shout out on a future. We will get you a shout out on a future episode. Let us know where you listen from, how long you've been a fan, and we'll get you that shout out. Like I said, we've already got two in the chamber for next week. So let us know where you're listening from, how long you've been a fan, and we'll get you on maybe in two weeks, maybe later than that. But we will get your name shouted out on Pound the Rock. <laughs> all right. Thanks, Cash. Thank you to all our listeners for sticking with us. We're, we're coming up on the three-year mark of this podcast, which is just wild to me um yeah we have uh, we've come a long way and for any day ones out there that have stuck with us for that entire time really appreciate it and obviously anyone who has started listening more recently than that happy to have you aboard keep spreading the good word and we will keep the shout outs coming for now we're going to put a ribbon on this and go watch some opening day baseball so for joseph Cacharo, i'm joe wolfon pound the rock